Well, good morning. You lost an hour of sleep. Uh, the coronavirus is cruising around the country, and you're here. So this is awesome. It's so good to see everybody this morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest this morning, I would love to get a chance to meet with you after the service. Maybe I can connect with you in the foyer. Uh, we're going to spend some time in the Word now. I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. So we're going to look at a big uh, chunk of this book this morning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 21, as we continue our sermon series, which we've entitled Incomplete, where we've been recognizing that we are incomplete, but we find everything uh, that's missing in us in Christ. And so we'll continue that uh, this morning. Um, so here now God's holy, true, and life-giving word, Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We praise you for revealing yourself to us in your word and through your spirit, and most of all in your son. We thank you that you have called us to be a church, part of your worldwide church the ingathering of the people that you have redeemed through your Son. 
And we do pray now that as we think about the many things Paul talks about in this passage, that you would help us to know you more deeply and be even more excited and equipped to continue our mission to make disciples. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this was an interesting couple weeks thinking about this sermon. And uh, if you read the weekly email, you know that I've been sort of just facing some of my own sin and my own incompleteness. Um, you know, we are, this ser- series is about how we're incomplete and we need Christ for salvation as well as to fill the many, many gaps we have. And, um, and as I was, you know, wrestling with that, but then seeing the things that Paul's talking about here and even, even the way he calls himself the least of all the saints and, uh, just has this in- in amazing view of how he's really nothing, but Christ is everything. Uh, I was thinking about how do we, how can we, talk about all that's in this passage. There's so much. And uh, the thing that kept landing on my heart as I was uh, studying this passage and seeing all these things is that Paul's talking about a number of things that are true about us, about uh, you and I who believe, things that are true about us, even though we are incomplete. There are these really amazing things that are true about us uh, as we are part of God's church, part of the gathering of people that Christ has redeemed. And so as I was thinking about all these things that he's talking about here, they, 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 they kind of make this case for why we are, as some have said, the hope of the world, that the church is the hope of the world. And you might say, well, no, Christ is the hope of the world. Yes, amen. But Christ is continuing his ministry in this world through us, through you and me, through his church through local churches like University Presbyterian Church. And um, I wanted to uh, focus then on five reasons that the church is the hope of the world. So that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at these things that Paul talks about. Five reasons that the church is the hope of the world. And so let me give you these five things that we see in this passage and then we'll walk through them. Okay? Five reasons that the church is the hope of the world. Uh, number one, we have God's revelation. Number two, we display God's wisdom. Number three, we are willing to suffer. Number four, we have access to God in prayer. And number five, we know the love of Christ. Whenever that happens, it means what I'm about to say matters. I think that's, that's how we interpret that around here. Number five, we know the love of Christ. Okay? And all these things are true of us even though we are so incomplete, even though we have gaps and flaws and failures, even though we you know, get leveled by the realization of our own sins at times, even though we feel weak, even though we are sometimes just trying to find energy just to keep going. All these things are true, and it means that you and I are the hope of the world. So uh, let's talk about these. Number one, uh, we are the church. We are the hope of the world because we have God's revelation. One of the things that Paul is talking about in this passage is that everything that he is giving to us, everything he was giving to his original readers, it came to him by revelation. He uses that word that it was revealed to him. And he even talks about how God has given this plan. He's made known his plan for the world through apostles and prophets, as he talks about here. And that he's done that by the Holy Spirit. 
So God has spoken to the apostles and the prophets through the Holy Spirit to ensure that what they have, what they've received, is, is from God and that they're able to give that then to us. And he talks about how he, even though he's the least of all the saints, uh, as he says in verse 8, in verse 7 he talks about how by the working of God's power he has received this revelation. This truth from God. And that's part of why we, as the church, are the hope of the world. Because we have truth. We have God's revelation to the world in the Bible. And one of the things to recognize is Paul is emphasizing here that what he has, what he's writing down, what he's giving to them, is revelation. It's not formulation. It's revelation. It's not formulation. In other words... Paul did not formulate his own ideas about God or the divine plan for the world and then pass them on. But rather, he's passing on what was given to him through the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 1.21 where he says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the same thing. That's the view of all the uh, New Testament Apostles, the writers of the Bible, the whole Bible, is the view that God has, through the Holy Spirit, He's given us what He wants us to have. And we have that in the Bible. And I know that a lot of people struggle with this. A lot of people would say, well, how do we really know that the Bible is from God? How do we know that people didn't make stuff up? And that's why I love what Paul says here in verse 4. In verse 4, he invites us to really deeply think about what is said in his writings, and I think that applies to the whole Scripture. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. In other words, there's this invitation for you and I to really study the Scriptures, to really look at what has been written. And the reason I think Paul invites us to that, here and in other places, is because he knows that if we will really study the Scriptures, if we'll really seek to take an unbiased approach and just read the Scriptures as they are, we will see that the message of the Bible is completely and absolutely unique. There's nothing else like it in the world, in any philosophy, in any religion, in any worldview. There's nothing like the Christian message. And the fact that there's nothing else in the world like the Christian message, like the message of the Bible, is evidence that it's not from this world. That the truth we have in the Scriptures has been given to us by God. That we would not know these things if God had not revealed them to us. In the same way, we can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves right with God. We need Christ. We need God to give us Christ to save us from our sins, to die on the cross for our sins. We would never know these things unless God reveals them to us. And we have that revelation in the Scriptures. I was thinking about this, how... Uh, there's a woman named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, and uh, some of you might know her name. She's an author. At one time, she identified as a lesbian, feminist, atheist, and she was uh, working at Syracuse University and wanted to write an article critical of evangelical Christianity. And so she started studying the scriptures so that she could have an accurate representation of what the Bible says. And as she studied the scriptures, and then, by God's providence also, started meeting with this minister who helped her understand what the scriptures were saying, she realized there was nothing else like this in the world. And she actually became a believer. And her life has been radically transformed. And she wrote a book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And uh, I would recommend that to, to anybody to read, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert 
by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Amazing book of her journey from atheism uh, into being a faithful follower of Jesus. So one of the reasons that we are the hope of the world is we have God's revelation. Next, uh, we have God's or we display God's wisdom. Look at verses eight through ten. We display God's wisdom. All right. Verse eight, he says, sorry, I just put an altoid in because my mouth is so dry right now. All right. He says uh, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known. See, one of the, another reason that the church is the hope of the world is because it is through the church that God is manifesting His wisdom. Manifesting that He knows what actually leads to human flourishing. Manifesting that He knows how to bring healing to all the divisiveness and disunity that humanity experiences all around the world. And, you know, we see this, like when we apply God's word, when we believe that the Bible is from God's, from God, and when we believe it and then apply it in our lives, the, the transformation that takes place shows the world, the wisdom of God, that he knows how humanity is supposed to function. And we can see that in many, many ways. The main way Paul's talking about here is the fact that, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, God in Christ is making this new humanity. This new humanity that's made of Jews and Gentiles brought together into the church and made equal heirs, as he talked about here in chapter 3 as well. And in doing so, God is showing his wisdom to bring healing to humanity. As the church all over the world, filled with people from different nations, different languages, different ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds. Thank you. Tina, come on. I mean, are you guys the best? She was sick of hearing my lips stuck to my teeth, I guess. <laughs> but think about this. like God is making this new humanity in which everyone in the church, everyone, all the people who believe in Jesus, they are reconciled to God through faith. And then they're also reconciled to one another. And so it creates this peace that the, the world cannot produce. But in the church, there can be this peace between people and it demonstrates the wisdom of God. It shows the wisdom of God to the world as well as he's primarily talking about how it reveals the wisdom of God to the evil powers. Like as we seek to uh, live in harmony with one another of all different ethnicities and backgrounds and uh, from all the different traditions we come from, as we seek to live in harmony, it shows evil even. That it shows evil that God's wisdom is here. God's wisdom is among us. You know, one of the things that um, I was thinking about as I was realizing the way God is demonstrating his wisdom through the church is some of you might remember the Rwandan genocide in the mid-1990s. And um, you, you might have even seen that movie, Hotel Rwanda. And in 1969, Rwanda gained independence from Belgium. And the Belgian imperialists had divided the Rwandan people into two groups. If people had more than 10 cows, they were the Tutsis. And if they had less than 10 cows, they were called Hutus. And the group with 
with fewer cows was bigger. So there's more Hutus than Tutsis. And uh, for decades, the division between these two groups kept growing more and more hostile. Until in 1994, the Hutus unleashed uh, all-out war and genocide on the Tutsis. And for a hundred days, Rwandans, Rwandans killed each other at a rate of about a hundred people per day. And it's still one of the most tragic and egregious instances of genocide in recorded history. And that was then. Now, today, Rwanda uh, has one of the fastest growing economies and one of the least corrupt governments in the world. And there's peace between Hutus and Tutsis. Why? Well, when the killing finally stopped, an Anglican bishop named John Ruchihana uh, began to preach the gospel to both groups. And, uh, and through, through preaching in his church as well as starting this Rwandan prison fellowship, and to victims he was teaching how faith in Christ enables us to forgive people of even the most terrible sins that they've committed against us. And to the perpetrators, he was teaching how faith in Christ empowers us to repent and confess and turn away from sin and ask for forgiveness. And he began bringing, this, this bishop began bringing willing victims into the prisons uh, so they could face the perpetrators and offer them forgiveness and giving the perpetrators an opportunity to confess their sins and be forgiven. And so like perpetrators were looking in the eyes of the family of people that they had killed and they were saying, I am so sorry, please forgive me. And the family members of these slain victims were looking in the eyes of these perpetrators and saying, I forgive you. And now these two groups that were at war with each other now live in peace side by side, many of them in the same villages. And what, what could possibly bring that kind of peace? Only the gospel. Only the gospel of a God who did not destroy but laid down his life for his enemies. Only the God uh, who, can, who has sent his son so that people can be forgiven of any and all of our sins. And it displays the wisdom of God as we see the way the gospel healed that place and those people and reconciled them to each other. It displays the wisdom of God. So we, as the church, part of why we're the hope of the world is God is displaying his wisdom through us. Okay, we have God's revelation. We display God's wisdom. Next, we are willing to suffer. Now look at verse 1 and verse 13. It's interesting in this passage, Paul refers to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. Now, he was a prisoner in Rome. But he calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. In other words, he knew that, yes, he was in prison for preaching the gospel, but he was ultimately there for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the advance of the gospel. And he had this willingness to suffer so that the gospel could continue to advance to more places, so that the revelation that he had been given could be passed on to more places. Look at verse 13. He says, So that I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And this is remarkable because what he's showing here is that his suffering is not for himself. He's suffering for them. He's willing to suffer selflessly. You know, a lot of people would say, well, there's plenty of different religions where people are willing to suffer for their religion. 
It's true, but if you think about it, the majority, as far as I know, of other religions, when people seek to suffer for something, it's so that they will gain something. Like, yes, there are people who will blow themselves up for their religion, but so that they gain something. But as Christians, we believe we've already gained everything there is to have in Christ. And Paul knows that. That's why Paul is saying, don't lose heart over my suffering, which is for you. It's your glory. Because he knows that in suffering for the sake of the advance of the gospel, he's not gaining anything. He's suffering on their behalf so that they gain something. And that only comes from an understanding of the gospel. That only comes from the understanding that Christ also, he suffered not for his own gain. The Son of God had everything. He lacked nothing. He chose to come and suffer to pay for the sins of his people for our gain, not for his. And that's how Paul can, is able to do that. And that's how all of us are able to do that. The more that we realize that because Christ had suffered for our gain, that empowers us to be willing to suffer for the gain of others so that more and more people hear the gospel and are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another as well. And that also adds credibility to, the, to our witness. Like when people see that we're suffering, even though we don't believe we gain anything from it, at least not materially, it adds credibility to our witness. I was reading about how uh, on one occasion following an unspeakable suffering in a filthy prison, uh, a missionary named Adoniram Judson appeared before the king of Burma to ask permission to go to a certain city because he wanted to preach there. And the king responded, I'm willing for dozens of preachers to go, but not for you. Not with those hands. And he continued by saying, my people are not such fools to take notice of your preaching, but they will take notice of those scarred hands. In other words, that king didn't want Adoniram Judson to go preach because he was so beat up that that would add so much credibility to his story. And that they would believe. This is part of why we're the hope of the world. As we trust in Christ, we are actually able to sacrifice and to suffer, not because we're going to gain something, but because others will. That's part of what, why we're the hope of the world. So we have God's revelation. We display God's wisdom. We're willing to suffer selflessly. Number four, we have access to God in prayer. This is absolutely huge. When we pray, God hears us. When we pray, God uses our prayers. And it's part of why we are the hope of the world. Look at verse 12 where he says, we have boldness and access to God with confidence through our faith in him. And we saw that uh, Paul prayed in chapter 1. Here he's praying again. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He is praying because he knows that God hears his prayers. And God does hear our prayers. It's very interesting. A lot of people today, I see tweets and things written by people where they're saying, your thoughts and prayers aren't doing any good. You know, go do something. You seen that criticism? That that comes from people who have not experienced the power of prayer. They haven't seen God respond to prayer. Maybe they haven't prayed or maybe they haven't prayed 
very much or whatever. I don't know where that's coming from exactly, but I know that when you have a prayer life, you see God in action. And you see that he does answer your prayers. On Wednesday, my neighbor had a heart attack. Um, My kids came and said, there's fire trucks and ambulances outside. And they said, you know, something's happened. So I went and I found out that it was, uh, my neighbor had had a heart attack. His wife is a nurse. And when I got there, they had already taken him away in the ambulance. And uh, she was still there. The wife was still there. His daughter was there. And um, because she's a nurse, she saw the condition he was in. And she was pretty convinced he wasn't going to make it. And they, and they asked, they said, can we pray? And we did. And we sat there and we prayed and we pleaded with God, just asked to save this man's life. That was on Wednesday morning. Yesterday, I was with him in the ICU because he is alive. Because God has spared him. He was basically without a steady pulse for almost an hour. But God has saved him. God had answered that prayer. So when people say, you know, go do something, your prayers don't do anything. I'm like, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. In fact, there's nothing more we can do until we've prayed. Once we've prayed, then there might be some other things we can do. But, uh, but before we pray, there's really nothing we can do that can make a difference. Because God uses our prayers. He hears our prayers. And Paul, therefore, is praying. Praying for this church that he's writing to. And it calls us to be a praying church. It's part of why we're the hope of the world. Because as we look at the problems in the world, as we look at the struggles and challenges, we are able to pray. We are able to lift up prayers to God knowing that he hears us. Does he answer every prayer the way we want? No. But here's the guarantee. Every time we pray, something changes. Every time we pray, something changes. Either the situation, either the circumstance, God uses our prayer to change the situation or he uses that prayer to change us. But one way or another, things always change when we pray. It's part of why we're the hope of the world. We have God's revelation. We display God's wisdom. We're willing to suffer. We have access to God in prayer. Fifth, we know the love of Christ. Look at verses 17 through 19. Look at this particular prayer that Paul is making. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice that his primary prayer for this church and for ours today is not that they would behave in a certain way, but that they would know a certain love. His big concern is not that they behave a certain way, but that they know a certain love. Love, a kind of love that he says surpasses knowledge. Like you can't know it without God showing it to you in Christ. It's a love so great that he bursts out into praise in verse 20. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul so moved by that love of Christ that he explodes into doxology. It's his response to the love of Christ. 
You know, if you're if you're not a believer, one of the things that I think is, should be really challenging about this passage is it's telling you that there's a there's a love that you can't know unless you enter into a relationship with Jesus through faith. There's a ceiling to the amount of love you can know and experience. And the only way to break through that ceiling is to bow the knee to Christ. But when we do, and those of us who are believers, to see how much God wants us to understand that love, how much He wants us to see the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, a love that we can't know unless we know it through our relationship with Jesus, is such a beautiful thing. And as we continue to follow Jesus, one of the primary things we're seeking to know is that unknowable knowledge of his love. John Owen used to say that one of the hardest things as a pastor was convincing people that God loves them. And, you know, he's right. Because even as a pastor, I struggle with that about me all the time. And I know that you struggle with that too, but like God wants us to be absolutely doubtless about his absolute amazing love for us that we've received in Christ. And we, you know, we so often think God wants me to do this better or stop doing this. And that's like we, we think the number one thing God wants from us is to change the way we operate. But the number one thing God wants from us is that we see this love we embrace this love. We see its height and its depth and its width and its breadth. Because that love transforms us. Because it's sacrificial love. It's a love in which Christ came and died for us, took our place. Love like that changes us. In July of 1941, uh, at Auschwitz, the concentration camp, all the prisoners... Uh, in Block 14, were brought out into uh, this courtyard. And they were lined up under the hot sun, and um, they were told that somebody had escaped. And so the SS commander was saying that they were going to have, they were going to select people who were going to be starving to death, or they were going to be made to starve to death to make up for this prisoner that had left, that had run away. And so you got all these people, a few hundred people standing there, and this um, Nazi commander is there, and he points to a man that's supposed to come forward, and he's going to be selected to starve to death. And this man, uh, he comes forward, and he drops to his knees, and he starts crying out. He starts saying, I have a wife, I have children, please don't do this to me. And he's just crying out. And all of a sudden, there's like a commotion uh, in the crowd of these prisoners as this one guy is making his way through the crowd. And he kind of bursts through the crowd and the, the Nazi officials point their guns at him and you know say, what are you doing? And he says, Herr Commandant, a request. And the commander looks at him and says, what, what do you want? And he said, I want to take this man's place. He said... Uh, and this, this, is a, this is a priest. It was a Franciscan priest. He says, I want to take this man's place. I don't have a wife and I don't have children. And I'm not, I'm not really good for anything. Let me, let me take his place. And the Nazi commander said two words. Request granted. 
And he did. Like, what? How can someone show that much love, that willingness to suffer in place of someone else? Someone they don't even know. Only by knowing the love of Christ. The man knew the love of Christ and it empowered him to do something absolutely stunning and remarkable. He took the place of this man in his suffering. And that's what Christ has done for us. We are all enslaved to sin, enslaved to the, the consequences of sin, enslaved to the judgment we deserve for our sin. Yet Christ stepped forward. The Son of God steps forward and says, I will take their place. And the more that we internalize that, the more that we realize that, the more we begin to see the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. And it transforms who we are and empowers us to continue our mission to make disciples. So I hope we can go from here this morning not only being honest about the fact that we really are incomplete, we've got these gaps, but in Christ we find all that's missing in us, and even with our gaps, we are the church. You are the church. We are the hope of the world because we have God's revelation. We display His wisdom. We're able to suffer selflessly. We have access to God in prayer, and we know the love of Christ. When I was in high school, um, we didn't like the name of our football team or our teams um it wasn't a cool name like the cougars or the eagles or something like that our our name was the streaks so you can imagine there were some traditions that were um formed but anyway um we uh we didn't like that so we didn't call ourselves the streaks we called ourselves toga short for saratoga lived in saratoga springs and um so at a football game what would happen is We'd all go on Friday nights to these night football games. It was so awesome. And the whole school, really the whole town would come out. And um, what would happen is, you know, somebody would stand up and they would say, Who are we? And we would all yell, Toga. And then they'd say it again, Who are we? And we'd say, Toga. And then that third time, everybody would get ready. Because the third time, what would happen is, uh, he would say, who are we? And everybody would start stomping their feet and yelling, toga, toga, toga. And it was this amazing thing where we really felt unified and we're like, oh yeah, we're going to intimidate the other team. It didn't work. We lost all the time. But there was this feeling of that's who we are. That's who we are. And we're all, this is, this is who we are together. We are together in this. And I hope that we can see that in this passage, in this book even, God is saying to us, who are you? We are the church. Who are you? Who are we? We are the church. We are the hope of the world because we have these things in Christ. And so with our eyes on him, let's continue to be the hope to make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would uh, help us internalize these things, to see that we really do have truth from you and your word to see that you really do display your wisdom through us lord strengthen us so that we can be willing and even more willing to suffer for the sake of the advance of the gospel remind us that when we pray you hear
And Lord, would you answer Paul's prayer about the Ephesians for us as well, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God, so that as we seek to be the church, we do so fueled by the love of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.